From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I didn't think that much about Mrs. Doubtfire when it came out in 1993. I'm a member of Generation X, and we crapped on pretty much everything that was popular and made money. But somewhere along the line, it became one of my favorite comedies. It's a great San Francisco location movie, it's warm, and it's very funny, including this classic scene where Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire has a confrontation with Pierce Brosnan's character moving in on his ex-wife. Oh, what about their real father? What can I say, Ron? The guy's a loser. I'll see you. Loser. Yeah. Oh, sir! I saw it! Some angry member of the kitchen staff. Did you not tip them? Oh, the terrorists, they ran that way. It was a run by fruiting. I'll get them, sir. Don't worry. I invited the big event regulars, Beth Spotswood and Tony Bravo, who appreciate a good run by fruiting. This was a movie from their childhoods, not their jaded 20s, which adds a different dimension. We talk about the movie, director Chris Columbus, and our own interactions with Robin Williams, who was part of the fabric of San Francisco until his 2014 death. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Tony Bravo and Beth Spotswood, welcome back to uh, The Big Event. So excited to be here, Peter. Hey, Peter. Hi. We're here for Mrs. Doubtfire, um, 1993 film set in San Francisco, comedy... Robin Williams, and um, I think it's I think it's one of the better films that's been set here. It has some problems. We're going to talk about that. First feelings, first thoughts about Mrs. Doubtfire. Tony, go. Okay. Well, I should have opened by saying hello because that's one of my favorite parts of the movie, where Mrs. Doubtfire opens the refrigerator door and is wearing the cake on her face and says hello to the social worker. We say this in my family to this day. Okay. First thoughts. I mean, I think it's one of the one of the best comedies that's ever been shot in San Francisco. I think there are some parts of it that are problematic with perhaps lack of facial recognition of <laughs> one's own father and ex-husband. But when it's Robin Williams doing all those voices, I think I, I believe in the spirit of forgiveness. Beth, first impressions, first thoughts, Mrs. Doubtfire. I, it's incredibly nostalgic. I think for all of us having grown up in the Bay Area, it's a really special local film it holds a corner of my heart Mrs. Doubtfire as insane as parts of it are I love it so 1993 film is supposed to be set in Chicago and it moves to San Francisco Robin Williams home and then becomes this sort of I think quintessential San Francisco movie everybody is in it I wanted to ask you guys where were you when you first saw this film like kind of what was your state of mind what was your first Miss Doubtfire experience is it Miss or Mrs. Beth it's Mrs. Mrs. It's Doubtfire. Mrs. She's a widow. Okay. I'm, she's a widow. Thank you. Mr. Doubtfire died. Remember, he was hit by, by a truck. By Guinness truck. Right. It's the drink that killed him. <laughs> so, Miss, Miss Doubtfire, I'm going to make Mrs. this mistake. Mrs. Doubtfire, Beth Spotswood, your Mrs. Doubtfire experience. I have two. Okay. The first is a scout, a location scout crew came to my father's office. And they were potentially, they were looking for offices to use for Miranda Hilliard's design office and he was his office was rejected uh-huh. but i knew that they were filming a big robin williams movie because they had come to my dad's office to scout it 
And then when it, on opening nights, I went to Mrs. Stout for an opening night in Corte Madera. There's that big George Lucas put THX sound in this theater in Corte Madera. And it's opening night and the place is packed. And then all of a sudden there's a buzz at the door. And all of these teenage girls start screaming and a celebrity was in the house. It was Taryn Noah Smith, the youngest son from Home Improvement. Wow. Yes. So not Jonathan Taylor Thomas, the other one. The youngest one attended Mrs. Doubtfire opening night in Corte Madera and everyone was beside themselves. If they were not already excited enough about this movie coming out, the presence of a celebrity set us over the edge. What was your state of mind? Because this is... I was 15. 15 15-year-old Beth Spotswood. Big deal. Very big deal. There with all my friends, my little brother and all of his friends. We had gotten dropped off, I believe, from parents. Uh, So it was, I mean, there was a lot of buzz around this. Tony Bravo, you're, do you remember seeing this film? Oh yeah, saw it in theaters. Um, I it, so it came out in '93. I was nine years old. Um, I remember loving the fact that this was a it, it was Tootsie to the next level, which was a movie that I loved already <laughs> at at age nine. I I was ecstatic about the film. My parents, like, maybe not as thrilled because of the portrayal of divorce. Like, you know, they didn't want to traumatize me. But I was was so into this. I, like, wanted my parents to get divorced so (laughs) my dad could show up as an English lady. Like, I, it was, I thought, a great lesson that Mrs. Doubtfire was actually a better parent than either one of the parents were. Like, I thought it was a great lesson about how drag can really overall, you know, improve somebody's disposition in life. And it's a lesson that I've I've taken to heart, which is why I cover so many drag related events. <laughs> that was your takeaway? That was that was pretty much my takeaway. I mean, <laughs> that and, you know, some funny feelings about Pierce Brosnan in his, in his bathing suit. But, you know, let's keep it to let's keep this a family <laughs> podcast for today. I think I was 22 and I do not remember seeing this film. I, I may have rented it. These wow. were um, I was in college and working for my school paper. I had a job and I didn't this was like kind of like just this weird film wilderness period for me. I liked it. I remember when I saw it, I probably saw it a couple of times through the 90s, and I really liked it a lot. Um, my feelings have advanced now, though. We all watched it, I think, in the last week. Yep. And um, I wanted to start with how does it age? Um, I watched it, first of all, I have kids now, so it was a different film for me. I think. Um, I think that... I don't want to put this delicately. The the times have changed. Um, certainly, I have ethical questions with what he did that I didn't have when I was like 25. Like, is it okay to put on this makeup and then start asking your ex-wife, you know, how you were in bed? That didn't bother me when I was 25. Now I'm like thinking that's there's some problems with that. Not appropriate. Um, but I thought something's aged well. I wanted to ask you guys what. Watching this film now, do you feel like you're watching a 90s film or do you feel like this is aged pretty well? Well, I'm actually curious. I was as I was rewatching it, I'm curious to hear Tony's thoughts on this because stylistically, it's not bad. Oh, the 90s have definitely returned in our in our um, fashion culture big time. There's very little of it that I felt like aged poorly in that regard. Even like Miranda's power blazers are right. very much back in trend. Yeah. Um, but I, there are certainly some, the dressing up as a woman, the bus driver making a pass at her, when there are a couple of 
now in our perhaps more sensitive culture, um, I had, you know, I cringed a few more times. Um, but I don't know that it was, I mean, it, I wasn't dramatically offended. I don't know. What do you think? Um, you know what I have to say was encouraging in it was I loved the LGBT characters, um, uh, specifically Harvey, Harvey Firestein as Uncle Frank and, I'm um, sorry, say the actor's name again. Scott Caporo. Scott Caporo, who plays Aunt Jack. I love the fact that um, for a movie made in 1993, which is still very much um, a moment where the AIDS epidemic epidemic is huge in San Francisco, this was not a jokes on them type of a situation. They're really kind of the heroes or the terrible enablers of this film and <laughs> that they help Robin Williams transform into Mrs. Doubtfire. And that, um, that whole sort of transformation montage scene, I think is one of Robin Williams' most brilliant moments in cinema ever, where he goes from kind of playing Rita Moreno to playing Streisand to... Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. And then eventually we get that incredible reveal um, in the making where he where he rings the doorbell and we see her. You know, I, I agree with you that, like, those two characters are the most responsible people in the film, except maybe the Pierce Brosnan character. Oh, yeah. I, mean, they're I the want ones the kids who, to go live with, with the gay uncles. <laughs> with the gay uncles. Um, I also think that Robin Williams' improv, you know, whether it's Good, Good Morning Vietnam has its flaws, but his improv scenes play now like they did then. And any scene where basically you can tell that Robin Williams went off script and is just doing his thing, I think that part of um, him ages really well. My biggest thing that jumped out at me is coming toward the end. Now, we should probably, for anybody who hasn't seen Mrs. Doubtfire, he's um, getting divorced. He's he's the fun parent, gets uh, asked for a divorce. He's shocked by Sally Field, who plays his wife. And he dresses up as this English country... Um, what, governess, what you, governess yes. Au pair, nanny. So he can be near his kids, which we'll get into later. There's a ridiculousness to that. But um, at the end, there's a divorce scene, um, and they're in front of the judge, and they're hashing out, um, you know, that, that this has been uncovered, and people know what he's done now, and that he's been in this guise as this older woman. And the judge refers to him as a deviant because he dressed up like Mrs. Doubtfire. And that to me, like, on one hand, you know, are we supposed to agree, like, yeah, that is deviant behavior? Or was this like a stealth attempt by the screenwriters, much like they had the fun and responsible gay uncles, to have him be kind of a victim because people aren't accepting him because he is who he is? I'm get, am I getting too deep on Mrs. Doubtfire? No, I think that the judges were supposed to be on Daniel's side, on on. Robin Williams side and so the judge is a villain the it's judge a is absolutely a villain and I want to note too that that was kind of the last acceptable year I feel like we're in a mainstream Hollywood film an older white man could play a judge <laughs> have you noticed now that like all of the judges on Law and Order and every other legal anything it's usually like an older woman of color that now plays the judges you know so I'm all for not having um, older white men as judges in films anymore because they treat Robin Williams badly yeah horribly although Robin Williams put on a disguise and lied to his ex-wife and children violated court orders 
He did. He did. I mean, he did. You know, from a legal standpoint. From a legal it, standpoint, yeah, he's on some shaky ground. He's on right. some shaky ground, How but not but smart a deviant though. I mean, that's ignorant. So we all like this film. Um, oh sure. Oh sure. Definitely. I I do want to start with those some, and we're starting to touch on it. I think we need to get it out of our system. The things that we didn't like, because there are a few things. Before <laughs> we get to um, what we liked, where this fits in history, ethical issues of infiltrating the family and manipulating Sally Field, we've mentioned. Anything you guys want to add on that? Well, when he plans the birthday party that ultimately is the straw that breaks the camel's back and pushes Sally Field to divorce him, um, he puts together that party in about five minutes. So she leaves and she says something like, I'm leaving for four hours. And within that four hours, he books circus (laughs) animals or farm animals, whatever, a cadre of animals. A petting zoo, if you uh-huh. will. Right. Com- invites all these people who are available with gifts <laughs> that their parents have managed to purchase and wrap. Uh-huh. Has the whole party. People leave having trashed the house all within this window. Seems improbable to me. There's a lot of time and space issues with this and a lot of issues with um, the inability of people to say no in situations where they obviously would decline an offer. My biggest problem is the kind of threes company, family ties style um, scene where they go to Bridges in Danville, which, first of all, she's uh, Sally Field and Pierce Brosnan inviting Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire, you have to come to us for our birthday dinner at Bridges while the TV executive invites him to Bridges. How are both people in his life inviting him to a restaurant in Danville? Bridges is in Danville, and they are all in San Francisco. The TV station is in Oakland. Okay. It's KTVU, right? Okay. Okay, so the executive, an executive in Oakland, theoretically could live in the Danville suburban area. All right. I mean... That does make a little sense. That makes a little sense. I have to say, though, I've lived here my whole life, and I didn't know that Danville existed until, like, like three years ago so like that was kind of a major revelation i actually didn't uh i had never put like two and two together about the oakland danville connection so i'm going to give beth a gold star on that one thank you i think i think the answer is it's somebody on this production team whether it was robin williams or chris columbus or somebody had a friend who owned bridges and they got them in there i i just i that of all the things that hung up with me, I'm like, why is this family who lives in San Francisco with all the fantastic dining where options? Where would you have wanted going them to, to go? Stars. It, it was the golden era of stars. Yes. That's where people went for fancy occasions. Zuni. Zuni more for lunch, maybe. But Zuni was still at that point. Market Street after six o'clock where Zuni is. That was a no-go zone from what I remember. You had okay. to be very adventurous. And then, and then the whole... Um, thing where he's constantly having to change and be Mrs. Doubtfire and not Mrs. Doubtfire and run between that just stressed me out I felt like I had seen it on a bunch of sitcoms very Inspector Gadget yeah so that was my thing I didn't like that's the thing that like that's where I go and um, you know run an errand in the house while my family watches that part of Mrs. Doubtfire I just don't want I'd rather that not be in the film it gives me anxiety well my thing about that scene is first of all I love that they invited the help to dinner with them I mean that's very egalitarian sometimes people are not so inclusive of the people that work for them very Brady Bunch yes it was totally Brady Bunch (laughs) you know Alice come with us to Hawaii you know Um, what was really what to this day remains very strange to me 
is that we're supposed to believe that Sally Field is this like wonderful, capable, intelligent person and that the kids are, you know, somewhat bright. It, again, the Clark Kent thing about like nobody recognizes a that their father does voices during uh, especially during the phone call scene where all of the bogus nannies are calling in. I am job. I am job. I, I am love job. that scene. I am way. job. It's great, a great scene. scene. Yeah. I am job. Do you speak English? I am job. I'm sorry. The position has been filled. Um, and the, the children cannot recognize their own father. They spend all these hours with Mrs. Doubtfire, and before the big bathroom reveal scene, nobody ever once looked at Mrs. Doubtfire and said, take your glasses off, turn your head to the side a little bit, let me squint and look at you. You know, th- this uh, this accent sounds a little bit like one of the characters from Stuart Little, which you keep reading me. Yeah. I mean, just, was this I not a very bright family? a young Tony Bravo doing that. Like, if you were one of the Hilliard children, you'd be like, hold on, wait a second. We never see Mrs. Doubtfire and Dad in the same place at the same time. I like to think I would have been that smart. You know, I have to say, too, like at, at that age, the idea that you could have live-in help was still like very exotic to me. Or she, actually, she didn't live in. She, she only right. visited. But I will say, like I remember thinking, this is a great, you know, sort of like women's liberation moment for Sally Field. She's, you know, she's the one making the money. She's the one hiring the help. Um, I I kind of admire that about the movie, the fact that she's willing to acknowledge that she can't do it all, all on her own, but she wants to have it all. Yeah, It's a very yeah, and, 2000s and moment. Daniel does not appear to be paying any child support. Daniel makes this. no money. D- Daniel doesn't make any money until the end when Mrs. Doubtfire gets her own children's show. Which Can we talk about the, the issues with that? Do they know at KTVU that there's just been this big court case? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that would be the type of thing now. But it's that... not a criminal case. It's a family law case. I could see okay. where they wouldn't know. Um, this was an era, actually, Buster and Me, Buster from Buster and Me, is and Christopher Prey is the um, puppeteer, is, is actually in this show. There was Home Turf. There were a lot of local home programs. Turf. Um, this was a time of local educational programming. Oh, yeah. So that part didn't bug me too much, that he just suddenly would get this show where he you know that goes national that goes national um i had one other issue and beth you look like you got something too um and this is really every movie we do everything in the series it's the how does this poor guy afford that huge apartment in san francisco which they didn't paint but everything else about that apartment is i mean it looks like like a one bedroom nice apartment high ceilings not a bad part of town after Robin Williams moves out, he's suddenly in this great apartment. 93. It's 1993. It. Yeah, it's 1993. There's your answer. All right. I mean, I think that with any movie shot in San Francisco, you're just going to have to suspend your reality for real estate. Parking. Always parking he's up always front. always just pulling the up Doris that. Day parking. Pulling up that station wagon. It's like 14 feet long station wagon getting his spot. I don't know. I will say, seeing all of the... Um, 80s and 90s era cars in addition to the style is one of the most like heartwarming things about this it is the san francisco truly of my youth seeing old muni buses now that's like a whole subgenre of podcast that you're gonna have to do peter yeah. interview with the vampire also has a very good old muni bus shot early on in the film um 
uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 77 uses public transportation very well ah. and does not do the thing that every movie does where they have a cable car bell ringing where there's no cable car line, which <laughs> drives me crazy. Beth, problems. Problems with this film. The court liaison. The kind of, I forget her name, but she's the very shrill tight bun lady. Mrs. Selner, I think. Okay, yeah. thank you. Who play, I believe, goes on to, no, she doesn't play Charlotte's mother-in-law, but, in Sex in the City, but it's a very waspy actress that we've seen in lots and a lots of things. A character actress. Yeah. She also gets misinformation from Daniel, or that, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire is the sister. She then reports to Sally Field that he's living with his sister. Sally Field says, oh no, he doesn't have a sister. And everyone's kind of cool with it that he's lying about some woman staying in this apartment that Peter's mm-hmm. worried about how much it costs. Yet another unreported fact, like she's supposed to be following up on him, making sure that everything's on the, she's literally there to make sure everything's on the up and up. And there's a foreign woman who no one can identify staying uh-huh. with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's problematic. I mean, there's a lot to, lot to get through here before you start liking this movie. There's one line in one of the great fight scenes between Sally and uh, Robin that takes place in that apartment that I think is also a little problematic, although I will say at the time it probably wasn't. Sally Field shows up wearing kind of a Navajo print jacket, and um, Robin Williams makes the comment that he's decorating like a refugee, you know, sort of fleeing his homeland. Problematic in 2018, by the way. Then he looks at Sally Field and says, oh, nice jacket what's your indian name dances with uh, dances with no one or something something really obnoxious like that and i remember thinking ooh, upon reviewing this that's probably one of those lines that if they could go back and do a little trim job that yeah. might have made the cut that might have made the cut i think also the underuse of polly holiday flow from um alice and she's the neighbor who's nosy she's in for like one or two scenes i i wanted to see more of her there's a great cut scene with um the, with the neighbor next door that you can check out on YouTube or on the DVD for special features where Mrs. Doubtfire actually gives her some advice on how to get her begonias looking perky. She says you must put piddle on it. Nice. Piddle being urine. You have to get dog urine and she and there's this great monologue about how you have to go follow around dogs in the neighborhood with a little cup and then you have to squirt the dog urine on each blossom individually. And that's what gives them that little kick that makes them stand up in the end. <laughs> I could have I could have done with more Gladys Kravitz nosy neighbor scenes too. Yeah. Excellent. So things we like. Um, I thought the kids weren't as bratty as kids during that era. Like Home especially Alone, especially for a Lawrence child, and especially oh, yeah. for a Chris Columbus film, which I'm not bagging on him. I, I like his movies, and I like this movie a lot. But coming off Home Alone, where including Kevin, every child is horrible. Um, <laughs> These children are, you know, I mean, they're they have their problems, but they're treated realistically. You hate the kids they're not at home alone. All of them. They're all of it. That whole family. Oh, I hate everybody in home what? alone. I'm yeah, a, I'm with you. I want to see just a sequel where everybody's in rehab and and from the home alone family. That was a family that was going to develop some problem problem drinking. Yeah, oh my th- god, these, I love them all. These kids seem like they're. You know, they have their moments, but they seem okay. I like how divorce is handled, honestly. Yeah. Um, Robin Williams does not get his happy romantic ending, which apparently they were thinking of doing, and then they backed out of. But Robin Williams had already gone through a divorce and had said that he didn't want to give something unrealistic there in the end, from what I read, uh, which I think is really noble. Yeah, and and, and I, I mean, 
all of the unrealistic things, all of the things that we're criticizing, Pierce Brosnan, in any other film, you would find out he's this wretched person and some, you know, plot turn, contrivance would happen. And he was just like an okay guy. I mean, he's probably going to end up, I, I'm imagining in the fan fiction going on in my head, you know, a nice co-parenting situation where maybe Pierce Brosnan's helping Robin Williams with some style issues. And You don't think he runs the hell away from that family after that <laughs> night at Bridges? I mean, look, okay, so I go out on a date with somebody who's got kids and the former co-parent shows up in drag and has infiltrated the family for months pretending to be the help. Yeah. I'm going to say that's a that, like that is an occasion where it's totally acceptable to do some relationship ghosting. Like he never called me back because your ex-husband was had infiltrated your household in drag and nobody in this family could figure it out. <laughs> so I always like to fantasize that I've run into the Hilliard family, you know, today in 2018. I can only imagine the support group where I would encounter these grown children, <laughs> to be honest with you. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure they would still be talking about this if it didn't transition into being just like a fun family story. <laughs> yeah. Remember that time dad was the English lady for several months and none of us figured <laughs> it out? I can just imagine it being something where there's like... For there's several like a, months. For several months, they couldn't figure out that it was daddy in a dress and, you know, some old lady drag. Um, you know, just hi, you know, my name is Matthew Lawrence and for several <laughs> months my father was in drag and it's given me some major trust issues. Like now as an adult, I can only find satisfaction w within myself if I'm wearing kind of a chintzy skirt with a nice tucked in blouse. You know, you just, th this is my story. I, I don't, what do you think, Beth? I... Well, I, I mean, I agree that I loved that I didn't love, but I thought it was appropriate um, and kind of beautifully handled at the end when Mrs. Doubtfire, now on her nationally syndicated TV show, is reading a letter from a little kid whose parents just got separated. And she kind of talks about family. I mean, I love it. I know that, you know, I'm married to someone with kids and my husband's kids love Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, and it's really I mean, for for kids of divorce, I think it's really appropriate and and funny and touching and especially of the era when so many movies have like parent trap style have the parents getting back together um it was a little bit groundbreaking to have them stay divorced and figure out a way to co-parent and make it work yeah it is kind of the first movie for children of divorce i mean i guess before that they had kramer versus kramer <laughs> um but that wasn't something you would go to as a you know family family fun night out the out of the movies right i mean my parents did not care for this movie by the way because of the whole divorce angle of it i had to whenever it was on cable i had to kind of like secretly watch really? it after that <laughs> oh no i mean i think my dad just knew like how much i wanted him to doubt fire the whole situation <laughs> like i mean to this day i think my father would be hysterical as as an older english lady thank you for using doubt fire as a verb um can we to <laughs> doubt fire Let's run it by the copy desk. Run it by the copy desk. Um, I liked, too, that Williams's portrayal, which as his career went on, he would go on to be more like this. It was kind, but remained a little unbalanced throughout. Like, I could see him, you know, through some horrible tragedy, 10 years later, becoming the character he played in One Hour Photo. Like, I think One Hour Photo might actually be a sequel to Mrs. Oh, Doubtfire. That movie makes me... 
so uncomfortable. That is such an anxiety-inducing movie for me. There were yeah. some later career Robin Williams movies where I just like itch at my skin and and just get twitchy, and that's one of them. Yeah, I, I just felt like there was something a little wrong with him here, and he played it throughout. And um, well, there was a dark humor to Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. Certainly. Um, far darker than Mary Poppins or any of the other child care professionals we've seen represented in cinema. Like, I don't think Maria Von Trapp would have gotten away with some of the humor <laughs> that Robin Williams gets away with in this movie. So other things we like. I like the use of Bridges Restaurant in Danville. <laughs> I like that they give the real um, street corner for the house, Broadway and Steiner. Oh, right. Dear. They use the real Ooh, address. Steiner, how lovely. Yeah. Yeah. The by the way, the person who li- lives in that house now is just a saint. I think he's a, a pediatrician he's or like a podiatrist. Doctor. He's a doctor. And whenever I mean when Robin Williams died, people went there and people did go there. People went there to his character his fake house, his character's house, and left all their um stuff there. And he was super cool about it and Well it's interesting that know. that's the Robin Williams character that people were drawn to. Yeah. One of my favorite lines from the movie continues to remain, by the way. Um, it was a run by fruiting. <laughs> it was a run by it fruiting. It was a run by fruiting. I saw him go that way. When Robin Williams died, I had a friend that actually went to the Doubtfire house with a group of people and had a run by fruiting where people just threw Aww. limes at each other. Wish I could have been there that day. It sounded so sweet. <laughs> it sounds very sweet. Uh, I, I like, too, that it seemed like Good Morning Vietnam came out, and I feel bad for the real Adrian Cronauer because that wasn't his story. It was his story filtered through Robin Williams' improv, but that movie did really well, and I think people were looking for films to um, have Robin Williams riff, you know, and have that be part of the film, and I think this one was just a great fit, in part because um, it's in San Francisco. Um I thought the use of San Francisco in this was really strong. Yes. Yes. And not just the usual locations that we see where suddenly it's Princess Diaries and they're in Pacific Heights and then they turn the corner and uh, they're in the Excelsior. Yeah. On a cable car. On a cable you know, car. Having a conversation. A like car. you can do that. You know? I thought the views that they that they chose to feature too were not the typical views that we get of the bay and of of things from pacific heights that was really um, that was really nice to see and uh, and also we we did go to danville we did go to oakland we're outside of just the immediate san francisco area that's always nice well it seemed true to the bay area a real family other than your objections to ever going to danville for dinner Uh (laughs) um it's it the use of the suburbs by the way i don't hate danville i'll go for like pump it up I'm just. It's okay if you have a problem Danville with Danville things. I don't have a problem with Danville. I'll go to Danville for Danville things, but I'm not going to go. Bridges is a Danville thing. It's a maybe destination. I to, maybe I need to go to Bridges. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm going to have a podcast from Bridges. <laughs> yeah, is Bridges still open? Did anybody do any research on that? Um, yeah, it is. I think so. It, I've I certainly never it, gone to Danville. I looked at Bridges and I looked like the, at the about section for Bridges and it's like Bridges, which was in Mrs. Doubtfire for that's like one of the things that they mention and when they talk about their history. That's As like the first should. thing. How badly do we want to go see if those bathroom stalls have enough room to get into Dragon? Yeah, I could I could bring a whole coterie of drag queens. And we could just test this out. Oh my god! I, what if has like, Michael Bauer ever reviewed Bridges? You look that up. Well, He's I upstairs. like. What if I went to Bridges in drag and just saw if anybody said anything? No. 
we won't do that. I mean, I want to, we, Beth and I both really want to see you in Doubtfire Drag. (laughs) So, I mean, we'll go to this. I'll sit at one table. Beth will sit at the other one. You can come to my table as Peter. You can come to Beth's table as Doubtfire. We, We'll do the whole scene. We'll see if I, we'll see if I fool my children. Um, Your children are so smart. Your children are going to be like, dad, your lipstick's uneven, please. Totally. My older son would in a minute. So Chris Columbus, Robin Williams, like all their friends are in this, or or I don't know. I mean, there's so many Bay Area people that I recognize. Um, Terry McGovern, who does a lot of voices. He showed up on Mythbusters a few years ago. He's, I think, the ADR chief um, during that wonderful opening sequence with uh, Chuck Jones animation where Robin Williams is laying down the voice track over the smoking bird. Yes. Is that yeah. Chuck Jones animation? That's that I didn't fantastic. know that was Chuck Jones. Yeah, uh, Chuck Jones animation. And um, so you've got Terry McGovern, you've got Scott Capuro, um, all kinds of just Bay Area references that I don't think, like, if someone came in and made a movie in San Francisco who was not from here, it would have been a different movie. And I always felt that with Robin Williams and what I've heard when you talk to people who were comics and worked with him, they're really positive. They're always that thought, like, that, okay, if he comes in, you don't want to put a part of your act that he might repeat. He, he got accused of, of taking parts of people's act and redoing it. But he was super, super loyal to San Francisco, it feels like, in his movies, especially when they took place here. I would imagine. Could you imagine if it played now? I mean, I think even now it would be too progressive for a lot of ink. Really? Yeah. Don't you think Fox News would just have all kinds of things to say about Mrs. Doubtfire? No, in San Francisco values, <laughs> deviant, deviant transgressive drag queen father destroys children's lives. Actually, that sounds a little bit like what I was saying about the kids needing therapy. So hopefully I'm not getting too close to the party line on that one. So I've never met Chris Columbus. He's the nicest. Lovely. I've heard delightful. Tell me, uh, I I want this reinforced, though. How did you meet him, Beth? I met him at the Game of Thrones season five opening that I was covering for the Chronicle. And I took my brother, who's a huge Game of Thrones fan. And I noticed that sitting behind us through the entire screening was Chris Columbus and his wife. And so as we got up to leave, as everyone's getting shuffling out of the theater, I say, Chris Columbus, it's so nice to meet you. I'm Beth Spotsa from The Chronicle. This is my brother. He works at Lucasfilm. And so my brother, not really paying attention, just starts chatting. And the two of them walk out of the whole theater, out onto the sidewalk together, chatting about animation and stuff. And he was just lovely and normal. And as he leaves, my brother turns to me and says, who was that again? And I just took a second because I knew this was going to be a huge moment for Alex Botswood and said, Chris Columbus. And he, I mean, my brother got teary. Like it was a very exciting, he was so sweet and normal and just chatted business with us. I have to say the interview that I did with him a few years ago, I was very conscious of the fact that I was interviewing somebody that had created a lot of the things that influenced my childhood. He, I think, wrote the screenplay for Gremlins. He wrote, I know he wrote the screenplay for Goonies because the whole time I was interviewing him, I was like, don't nerd out about Goonies. Do not, <laughs> do not talk about. Did like, he have Goonies how... stuff in his office? There were some Goonies posters, and I think there may have been a one-eyed Willie skull <gasps> at some point. I mean, that office was jam-packed with memorabilia. Um, and the interview I did for him was actually for around the release of a film that did not get 
great reviews. I, I believe it was called Pixels, starring oh, yeah, that, Adam Sandler. That did not get good reviews. My um, kids wanted to see it. I did. Uh, you give it a bad review. Peter? You know, I don't think it's screened for critics. I, that would have been mine. Like that yeah. Pixels is, is. I remember it was coming out and telling my kids like that's that's something they're going to have me review. And then it, I think it never screened for critics. I, I believe you're correct in that. I, however, did see an advanced screening <laughs> of it before I interviewed Chris. And it was, um, it was it was certainly an interesting film. I'm glad that he took the artistic risk on it. He was just so accommodating about talking about not only his own oeuvre, but, you know, filmmakers that have influenced him. I think Capra came up as a, as a big example. And uh, Preston Sturgis as... Um, earlier Hollywood filmmakers that were important to his development as an artist. Um, also, like, it's really interesting, I think, to look at this film, not only in, like, kind of Chris Columbus's overall explorations of childhood themes, which he does in a lot of his films, but Robin Williams had also, I think, like, two years before done the movie Hook. Mm-hmm. And I, I think had um, he'd already had his son, Zach, who's a couple years older than me in the 80s, and I think he was kind of a new father again. At this point, it's interesting to consider that he was looking at other family-friendly projects at that point, like Aladdin, like Hook, like Mrs. Doubtfire, to see um, this kind of moment that Robin Williams had in his career where he was doing stuff that his own kids could watch a little bit more um, safely than, like, Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, and, and, I mean, on Chris Columbus for another second, he did Adventures in Babysitting, directed that, which was fantastic, and had... He must have been so young. Got the kids right. Um, the first two Harry Potter movies, which I think there, very few people would say they're their favorite Harry Potter movies, but they're the perfect introduction to Harry Potter. If you had a darker, you know, Alfonso Cuaron Harry Potter to begin with, it wouldn't have been as good as having Chris Columbus start that series. Out. What's okay. that face? You made a face when he said it's not my, favorite. It's my favorite. It is? Harry Potter 1 is okay. my fave. Okay, sorry. Because it's so cozy and Chris Columbusy. It's warm and Christmassy. Robin Williams films, um, Mrs. Doubtfire. Let's let's rank this among Robin Williams films and also San Francisco films. Um, well, they're two very different. Yeah, I, I. This is my favorite Robin Williams film. It's not the best one. <gasps> what? Wow. That's... It's not the best one, but it's got the combination of him doing the improv a little bit of seriousness in it, and the San Francisco flavor to it. Dead Poet Society. No. Okay. I don't, I don't like the... Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill no. Hunting. It's not your fault that you... I'm not saying don't it's the do that best film. I will film. start crying hysterically. I'm not saying this is a better film than Goodwill Hunting. I am saying it's my favorite Robin Williams film, which means, and that's parsing words here, but it means that if someone were to you know, get out of hard time after 50 years in prison and have entirely missed Robin Williams, this is the film I'm going to show them first. I think it has everything that I like about him. It's got the serious side, a little bit of darkness. It's got the improv thing. And it's Robin Williams in San Francisco, which is where I like to think of him. So, I'd say this is in my top five for Robin Williams movies, for sure. Um I think it hovers between two and three. Like, Goodwill Hunting is probably number one for me. And this maybe hovers, this and Aladdin probably go back and forth between two and three for many of the reasons why Peter was saying, I love that this is a San Francisco movie, that it shows the city that I, as I remember it as a kid. Um, but also just, 
it captures both like the poignancy that he had as a dramatic actor so beautifully and there's all those scenes where you can just tell Columbus that okay now here's a take for you go ahead and I feel like so much of those so many of those takes made it into the final film Beth you're making a face well I just I mean in I think that Dead Poet Society is my favorite, followed by Goodwill Hunting. And then in terms of the family genre, this is certainly my favorite Robin Williams. To your point that it gives you all of the Robin Williams-esque things that we like, and it's in San Francisco. I just feel like when he died, I wasn't sitting there going, God, I need to see One Hour Photo, or even I need to see Goodwill Hunting. I mean, that to me was a really good film where Robin Williams played a serious part and was excellent in it. Um this film just to me is everything I like about him. So, and it's it's flawed. I mean, I have my problems. I beyond bridges, I have my problems with this film. I got to leave the room a couple times, but um, when do you leave the room? I'm just curious. I leave the room during the bridges scene, and okay. I also leave the room when um, the facial cream meringue pie starts falling. Oh, right. In the caseworker's coffee. That tea. is such a fabulous. Oh, scene no. it though, makes me uncomfortable. because yeah. I have to tell you, I grew up in a house where I mean, like old Italian women do put on that much cold cream and face cream at night. Nothing about that looked unrealistic <laughs> to me, other than the fact that it was cake frosting. This is why we need Chris Columbus to answer some questions, because I bet he knows. Would you bring up the Bridges thing with Chris Columbus? I don't know. It'd have to be late. Maybe not on your. Maybe it, not on your first. Meeting. It'd be like my last question. You know, you journalists, you have your last question. Where if you get thrown out, it's okay. That would probably be my last question. Why the hell did you pick Bridges? Why did you pick Bridges? It's gonna be like, ruined it's my sister's the film place. for me. Um, <laughs> what if we find that out? That would be interesting. San Francisco films. Um, we did a poll years ago uh, when I did my RSF archive program and um, year-long thing and I did best San Francisco movies this one placed pretty high I remember I think making a joke because it actually more people voted for it than milk which of course it's not a better film than milk but where do you rate this in with San Francisco films or do you rate it in I mean oh, do you, sure do, oh you have to I mean do you do you, you know for me we've talked about this before Beth it's like vertigo dirty Harry um, bullet I hope bullet I like Star Trek Four. Beth likes the game. I like nine months, apparently. <laughs> Tony likes Tony nine months. Tony checking is, in on nine this months. Even, does this even belong in the discussion of upper echelon San Francisco movies? Yes. Absolutely. And you know what? Put it in the same sentence with Vertigo and with Bullet. It's a totally different type of film than the Hitchcock masterpiece. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like comedies always get ranked lower. They don't get the nominations come awards season. They don't get the same type of prestige as the big dramatic movies. I would say that Mrs. Doubtfire is in my top five San Francisco movies with Vertigo, quite frankly. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good point about comedies that they don't get. Mrs. Doubtfire did get an Oscar for makeup. Um, Deserved. Well deserved. It made a fortune. I looked it up on before this it cost 25 million to make and it made something like over 400 million it's a huge hit and so i kind of translate that to it touched a lot a lot a lot of people which validates its value one more positive thing to say about robin williams is they didn't make a sequel to this which licensed to print money they but he kept turning down the scripts and he even said at one point like you know, it ends in such a way. What are you going to do? I mean, they they know who Mrs. Doubtfire is. I mean, are you going to put on the makeup and find a way to fool some other people, a new family? I'm just saying, 
he made RV, he's like doing Happy Feet 2, and he didn't do Mrs. Doubtfire 2. So I, I know that in the end they were talking about a different way to do it and having him come back, but I thought I'd, I'd give him credit for that. I think he knew it was special. Right. Whereas RV is not special. RV is not special. Oh, a little trivia point, too. So, you know, Robin Williams did not do the first sequel to Aladdin. Um, I believe Dan Castellaneta, who voices Homer Simpson, did it because of a contract dispute with Disney. Robin did go back to do the third Aladdin film. And Mrs. Doubtfire actually appears as one of the genie's guises in the film. Really? And offers Princess Jasmine a cup of tea. Or oh, spot of tea, excuse me. Spot of tea. I yeah. love your love of Aladdin. It, Aladdin is an amazing piece of of Robin Williams' performance. I have some problems with how it represents the Middle East on a whole, but I will say that Robin Williams gives an amazing performance in that. Yeah, I no, I agree. I didn't know there was a third Aladdin though. That's some dedication. You have to be a serious Robin Williams fan <laughs> to know that there is a third Aladdin and that he is not in the second. Um, R.I.P. Robin Williams. Let's R.I.P. Robin Williams. Let's yeah. let's talk about him and I just want to give a little bit of a tribute I you know you talk to people on and off the record um, comics just love the guy I've never heard anybody say you know anything malicious about him Um, he was a person who was around town here unlike a lot of celebrities even who are from here like Robin Williams like Danny Glover was someone who if you just spent time in San Francisco you would run into him I remember 90 right around when this came out actually probably 94 95 i ran into him at steinhardt aquarium he's with his kid had a shirt on with a little um face with like somebody with like a black eye and it said don't ask on it yeah which i thought was kind of funny Uh, and i didn't i didn't approach him um he you know was friends with phil bronstein or knew phil bronstein i think they lived near each other in seacliff and a couple of times when I had my back to a hallway, I'd hear him walking down and kind of doing some kind of voice or something. I mean, it just, you knew it was Robin Williams. I don't think I turned around either time because I just knew it was him. And, um, and so, you didn't turn around to see Robin Williams walk by? No, I didn't want to like be that guy. He said, <laughs> don't ask, that. you know? I mean, so I, I just, he was part of the fabric of San Francisco. Um, I can think of, you know, a lot of people who in a newsroom, you find out someone dies and your immediate thought is like, do I have to write the obit? Oh, wow, they died. You know, it's not an emotional reaction. And I remember when Robin Williams died in the San Francisco Chronicle, there was an emotional reaction because Kevin Fagan had run into him working on homelessness things and our society writers had run into him and people had positive experiences and associated him with San Francisco. So RIP Robin Williams. Um, any Robin Williams stories you guys want to share or thoughts? What was um, really, I think, important about Robin Williams in San Francisco, like you said, was that he was a part of the fabric of the city. And I think it shows how cool San Francisco is and, and was that, for the most part, we left him alone. We, I, I remember seeing him out and about in the marina. Um, we all knew which house was his in Seacliff, but as far as I know, nobody harassed him there. I had friends that went to school with his kids, and if you saw Robin Williams out, you know you kind of knew to give Mrs. Doubtfire her space there. <laughs> um, but it's the one giant regret that I have of my career is that I just came along a little bit too late to ever get 
a big Robin Williams interview or even like really to get a comment from him at, at some party we both happened to be at. Did you ever get to interview him, Peter? I did not, um, but I don't regret it because I have real positive thoughts and saw him and I think anything that came out of an interview might have, I mean, it couldn't have gotten better, you know, in terms of just how my feelings about him. Um, I love that um, we have photos of him imitating the little man clapping. I mean, he knew what the Chronicle was. I, I feel about him, like Roger Ebert, I worked down in LA and I covered a couple of Academy Awards and I remember wondering if I should go up and say hi to him and tell him what he meant to me. And later on when I started reviewing movies, he was writing a column and I remember one time he said Mick LaSalle reviewed something that I did and I sent him a polite note and he sent a polite note back. I'm glad I never approached him or wrote and gushed to him. You know, I just... I don't think it would have added anything for him except for, for us to have an uncomfortable moment. And I just think so highly of Roger Ebert. And that's how I feel about Robin Williams. I've got a list of people I don't want to interview, like Judy Bloom. Uh-huh. Never want to interview her. I mean, it's not going to get better than Oh, Judy I have so Bloom. many things to say to Judy Bloom. See, but that's it. I would say them and then it would be awkward. I, so I, he was he was there. I, I don't regret that I didn't get to interview him, but I never did. I hear that he was very, very accommodating to people that did approach him, by the way. I mean, I'm glad that I never made an ass out of myself in front of him. But um, I, I hear that he was great, especially if kids wanted to wanted to stop. He would do the genie voice. He would do Mrs. Doubtfire. I, I've heard great stories over the years. Beth, you must have run into him. I've seen him, but I never approached him. Yeah. I've seen him. I saw him at Cops Comedy Club um, walking around. Um, I saw him, I want to say on Chestnut Street, somewhere in the marina when I was a kid. But I chickened out and never said anything. I kind of regret it. It was a big deal. I remember the, um, the Robin Williams Tunnel now. I had a bunch of East Coast people come out for my wedding last year. And the big draw for them was to see the Robin Williams Tunnel. They thought it was so... That there wouldn't be something so major named after a movie star in the East Coast. They thought it was a very kind of touching, lovely San Francisco thing, Lorraine thing. Can we say that he was more than a movie star in the Bay Area? Yeah, I think he was an icon. I mean, you know. Um, Yeah, so R.I.P. Robin Williams. R.I.P. Robin Williams. Um. San Francisco comedies. So we're going to do some more of these. And this is sort of the question I ask at the end of any San Francisco cinema greatest of all time. What should we do next? We've done... Copycat. I've been telling you... (gasps) Copycat. Yes, with Sigourney Weaver. Right. Come on. do And you know Kevin Fagan's in. Okay. He loves that movie. Oh, I'm so there for Copycat. And if you want another great women in peril film that I think plays as a comedy is uh i think it's called twisted with ashley judd but didn't that was horrible yeah right? but it, you know what it wasn't meant to be a comedy but i laughed my way through it twisted twisted yes. starring ashley judd as a woman in peril who is also a police officer it was philip kaufman right yeah i think it was a yeah. philip kaufman she did movie. The, she did that one with um morgan freeman not no with samuel l jackson she previously oh, had I'm done a movie. Kiss the girls. There's always yeah. a wise older black man mentor in these Ashley Judd movies. Sometimes it's Lawrence Fishburne. Sometimes it's Morgan Freeman. In this case, it was Samuel L. Jackson, and I think that he's he's a quite interesting father figure for her in this movie. So comedies, foul play, maybe. What are, what are some of the best comedies in San Francisco? Foul Play, I think, is, is definitely a good one. I've never seen Foul one. Play. Goldie Hawn trying to stop the assassination of the Pope. Oh, yeah. God. 
Papa Francisco? Papa Francisco. <laughs> it wasn't Papa Francisco at the time, but yes. Um, comedies. There aren't that many. I mean, if you go through great San Francisco films, Oh, I'm going to mention Princess Diaries here, actually. It does get the geography of San Francisco wrong, but my first year in college at Bennington, Vermont, I would get so homesick, because I don't know if you've ever been to Vermont. It's quite cold. And I would put on the Princess Diaries, and I would look at all of those vistas, and the firehouse and the Excelsior, and Julie Andrews is the queen of Genovia, and I would just get so heart sick for every one of those scenes also never once believing by the way that Anne Hathaway's hair was that curly <laughs> you're not going to mention nine months <laughs> I nine feel months. like I plugged nine months enough um, I'm going to be waiting for my residual check yeah for nine, nine months is going to be real stoked I, I'm going to see that film I haven't seen it so it may make our list I've talked know. it up so much now you're only going to be disappointed. <laughs> be disappointed I've never heard anyone talk up nine months as much as you yeah you know what because most people are ignorant <laughs> <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both for coming uh, back, and um, I hope you'll come back again. Love um, it down here in your haunted lair. Yeah, it's not bad. I like it down here. This is, I think, our 13th or 14th podcast, and um, I'm digging it. You know, no one knows we're down here. You could dispose of a body down here. No one's going to know. I know. You're like the phantom of the uh, archives down here. Yeah, so Who's, I what's dig next? it. What's your next uh, podcast? My next podcast, I, I'm afraid to say because it may not happen, but um, we're going to do some archive stuff down here. Um, I'm going to start having some archive-based podcasts. A little hard in the audio medium to talk about photos, but we're going to go for it. Oh, I know what you could dig out of the archives for your next podcast. What's that? Um, all of the photos from the set of nine months. Yeah. <laughs> and all of the reviews of Bridges. All the reviews of Bridges. That's it. We're going to end on that. Um, thank you so much. You two are two of my favorite people. So um, thank you for coming back. I thank hope you. we Thanks can have you back us. often. And the big event, San Francisco Cinema Greatest of All Time, Mrs. Doubtfire. Thank you very much. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Beth Spotswood and Tony Bravo. Read more of all of our work and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on iTunes and other streaming services. Listen at www sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts with an S. Well,